So I try to help them understand that, yes, this is important. And the best thing we can do is to show that we trust ourselves, our organization, our leadership, and our operators with this opportunity and try to open the door to make it a team sport. Technology is transforming how we think, how we lead, and how we win. From InterVision, this is Status Go, the show helping IT leaders move beyond the status quo, master their craft, and propel their IT vision. It's been said, to err is human, but to really foul things up, you need a computer. Never automate a bad process. Oh, and the oft-quoted garbage in, garbage out. As IT professionals, we have always espoused people, process, then technology. If we all know transformation or change starts with people and the processes, why do we so often jump to the technology before fixing our process? Today's guest is Tom West. Tom is the founder of Green Dot Consulting Group and the host of the podcast, the improvement nerds. Tom's mission is to change the world one process at a time. Welcome to the show, Tom. Oh, thank you so much. And what an awesome introduction with the the quotes and the piles of, you know, things that we sometimes step off on. You know, we know what we should do oftentimes, but uh, it's like once you get into a decision-making role, like the blinders come up. You just think about goals and moving forward. And oftentimes with that, you confuse activity with progress or productivity. So I cannot wait to have this episode and kind of talk about how we help people play this game in a little bit heads up, more heads up fashion. Well, and kudos to you for one of the coolest podcast names. Uh, It's probably the second coolest that I've heard, The Improvement Nerds. I won't tell you which one I think is the coolest, but The Improvement Nerds is pretty good. So before we get into attacking the process problems, take us on your journey, Tom. How did you become the self-proclaimed improvement nerd? If you go and check me out on LinkedIn, which seems to be the only form of social media I know how to use, a lot of people have asked, you know, are you on Twitter or Instagram? And yeah, I'm there, but don't expect to be impressed if you check me out there. Uh, but, but on LinkedIn, you know, I have a, a list that's somewhat making fun of myself about all the acronyms after my name. Uh, you know, having gone to school, got my graduate degree, and I focused uh, when I did my MBA studies on finance. At the time, I was working in treasury services for a fundraiser, and I thought I wanted to take my career in that direction and be um, someone who did fund development and help foundations grow and do amazing things through their efforts. And while I was doing that work, I started to look at my processes a little bit and noticed that they had a little bit of opportunity for improvement within them. So, you know picture you're a donor in the congregation so it was a faith-based organization and they give a gift um, with the hopes of being to help someone else so very altruistic and then that donation goes through this process of being collected in where they practice their faith then being routed to my office then being accounted for then being cashed then 
being batched and then routed to the field agents to finally do the good work that it was intended to do. So there was a lot of process and, and bottlenecks and a waste along the way. And every day that dollar was stuck in process, it was consuming costs. So the, the intended gift and the dollars that were actually given at the end were very different. And that just was unsettling to me. So I started to focus on process and tried to, wherever I could within that work, make that work easier, more seamless, more efficient, and hopefully through that, honor that donor's dollars a a little bit more. And I had no idea that what I was doing was uh, a career track uh, for project managers or process improvement people. I just thought about what if I was that donor and what if I knew about all this waste that would upset me and um, I wanted to do something about it. So that was kind of where the initial seeds were planted. I eventually studied and got my green belt while at grad school. That led me to doing a couple of volunteer projects. And then I uh, was nerding out about, as most improvement people do, I was nerding out about one of the projects I'd worked at uh, on during school with a friend out on a training run for a marathon. And he's like, you know, that's what I do. That's what I do for the hospitals here. And did you know we're also hiring? And, you know, I wasn't really looking, but I was smart enough to say, yes, I want to interview for that. <laughs> and uh, that led to a nine-year career in healthcare where I eventually, you know, studied and got my PMP. I got uh, my black belt. And then within two, three years of that, the organization wanted us to start to teach black belts internally. And that led me to get my master black belt uh, with ASQ, the American Society for Quality. And this, so if you're following all that, that's a lot of credentials about why I went after them all is because I really wanted to be able to teach and coach and mentor other people so that they can get these credentials for themselves uh, because you know there's a lot of change that's needed and we need a lot of people to get the tools in order to lead those changes. So that's where I pushed myself to go for those higher levels is so that I can teach other people so that they could be successful in their own journey. And uh, along it all, you know, I just tried to be myself and have a lot of fun and, and bring an element of play to everything that I was doing. So, you know, having a degree in finance and being a master black belt, it's kind of uh, analytical. And yes, I am analytical, but that stuff's not very fun. People may be motivated by numbers, but oftentimes they're just confused by it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I tried to make it more personable, and that's why I've called myself an improvement nerd. So I want to get this straight, just to make sure I heard you right. You studied and passed your green belt while you were in grad school, while you were training for a marathon, and you said you still like to have fun? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, does, how does that work? No, I, I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I have a skewed definition of fun because after that marathon, I, tra- I started to train and do half Ironmans uh, because marathoning wasn't fun enough, I guess. Wasn't fun enough, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So you left the, the hospital to start Green Dot. Talk us about that decision and a little bit about what Green Dot does. And then I'd love to kind of role play a little bit, if you don't mind, uh, after you give us the little baseline. So, Yeah. So I really enjoyed the work I was doing here in Indianapolis, working for a regional health system. I was on an internal consulting team of individuals that you know, had clinical background, IT background, so pretty diverse in kind of the work that they'd done before they joined the improvement team. And our role was to support the organization's change efforts. And healthcare, if anything is constant, it's change, right? It's 
you know, what your consumer expects. It's how your payers are changing the payment model, innovation, new technology, uh, cybersecurity risk, you, you name it. There's always um, something pressuring healthcare to, to change and adapt. And our role was to facilitate teams to respond to that change and to experience high success rates when implementing projects or strategic efforts to address that change. So I, I'd done that for nine years, met some of the most um, saintly people. I don't know why they decided to associate with me. Uh, just <laughs> giant hearts, true servant leaders, and met uh, people that I'll consider lifelong friends while doing that. And, you know, we, we had a lot of wins on our journey. And I started to realize that we were pretty far along. And the need for super nerds uh, or highly sophisticated improvement was starting to become less and less because it was concentrated within the organization. The operators, someone we called the caregivers, anyone who worked in healthcare, they gained for themselves the skills they needed to improve with minimal coaching and minimal oversight. They were very self-sufficient. So having a big team really wasn't necessary. And I kind of saw that as a success that we'd worked our ways out of a job. And I then started to realize that a lot of organizations hadn't even started their journey. And man, wouldn't it be fun to do it all over again? And no sooner did I have that thought did that opportunity come my way in the form of a, um, a six-month contract with potential renewal to go to the four corners part of our nation and facilitate a hospital in that area to improve their financial performance and begin to adopt some of these uh, disciplined approaches to process improvement and track their results and be able to show that they were stabilizing the organization and that through that stabilization, you know, their, their risk to those people who were funding the organization was becoming less and less. So that was the jumping off point was to yeah. go out to a place I'd never been before to lead a, a turnaround effort and to help an organization go from, you know, looking at a lot of risk to thinking more logically about how do they address it? What's the most logical first steps they can take? And how do they coordinate their resources to get it done? And how do they track their results as they execute and show that this risk is being lessened as a result of everyone's hard effort? So I'm seeing this recurring theme, Tom, that, you know, running a marathon wasn't enough fun. You needed to do a half Ironman. Process improvement for one company wasn't enough. You want to do it for a dozen or more companies at the same time. I, I see how you roll, man. I see how you roll. So I'd love it if you bear with me here and let's, rather than just doing this normal interview style, let me be the CIO of a prospective client or a new client that you're sitting in front of, uh, how do you work your magic? How does this start? Where do we begin? So I'll tell you that it sometimes does feel like magic. And I'll tell you, it, I didn't learn how to do this until I did it wrong many, many times. So reading books like Switch, um, great book by the Heath brothers, and it's about how do you influence change by talking to someone's uh, analytical mind and to their emotional mind. Mm -hmm. And then another book, uh, I think it's Moments That Matter, another kind of how do you 
help someone have that aha, that, that spark. So when you're talking to someone facing change, you know, you want them to not be fearful from that change, but you want to help them actually see that through change is actually a lot of opportunity and a lot of good can come from it. So that's tends to be where I start is just about that mindset about, you know, changes here. It may have blindsided you. Um, so you're changing uh, on a short timeline mm-hmm. and out of desperation, or you saw it coming and you're trying to get out ahead of it and you're trying to change out of inspiration. It, you know, ideally it's the latter, but sometimes, you know, you meet organizations that have had their um, whole world rocked mm-hmm. and, you know, you want to, make sure that they know that it it's no one person's fault. Things happen like this, these storms, they pop up out of nowhere and oftentimes no one could have predicted them. And now that it's here, the, the best thing we can do is not, not play the blame game um, and not hide from it, but accept it and, you know, try to analyze it and look at it in a way to which we can see the good and just get them in that mindset that, you know, what, what does success look like? Mm-hmm. when we're on the other side of this and, and really start with that. So hypothetically, we are in the midst of this project and it'd be easy to use uh, the pandemic from last year as our example, as we're talking through this, but I want to use something different. Um, we have the need in my organization to be PCI compliant, uh, payment card industry data security standards. And you may not know a lot about that, Tom, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot there, but a lot of it is process change throughout the organization. And I'm the CIO, and most of the company views this as kind of an IT project, right? And so I need your help. I need to bring in Green Dot, and I need help identifying where all the problems are and then how to guide that change. So help me unpack that a little bit. What role are you going to play in that process? And and I guess at the end of the day, I want my team to learn from you as they're doing this so that the next large change effort, they have an idea of where to start. I think that's a great jumping off point for our conversation. And I love how you started with an acronym to which I have no idea what it means. And that's, I think that's okay because I'm, I'm not an expert on any specific industry. I'm an expert on problem solving. Mm -hmm. So whatever problem you're facing, it doesn't really matter what industry you're in or what the source of that problem is. The approach to be successful in addressing that problem is the same. And the simpler you can make it, the better um, because has these, opportunities present themselves with the tendency that I see and maybe your organization or other organizations, you know, they would never commit this crime, but it does happen sometimes is that the change is so significant and so important that that leader thinks that it needs to be all within their control and under their thumb because it's so important. They don't want it to fail. So they get a little bit too close to it and take a little bit too much ownership of it when they're already very busy people. Uh, so I try to, in that situation, help them understand that, yes, this is important. And the best thing we can do is to show that we trust ourselves, our organization, our leadership, and our operators with this opportunity and try to open the door 
to make it a team sport so that it's not one person's creative thinking on how to solve the problem, but it's more individuals coming together and, and providing their ideas, their thoughts, their experiences, and their insights to kind of look at the problem from a lot of different angles. And once you do that, oftentimes organizations will kind of breathe a, a little sigh of relief to say, holy, holy smokes, had we not opened the doors and let other people add their inputs to what this problem is and why it's important for us to work on it, had we not, we probably wouldn't have defined it accurately and we potentially could have gone the wrong direction. And uh, thankfully, by inviting more people to the table to talk about it, we're able to understand it in new light and that we can define it better. And a well-defined problem is oftentimes a half-solved problem. So trying to take it from this is my problem to this reframing it as an opportunity. Yes, it's significant. But if you try to do it yourself, there's too much risk there. The best thing you can do is to invite others to participate and collaborate around it and make it a team sport. I love that because that, that really gets to when you and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, the what defining the problem is, as you said, it's sometimes half the problem. But the other thing that I found interesting in, in what you were saying there is a lot of times uh, failed projects get blamed on the lack of executive sponsorship. Oh, if we'd only had a strong executive sponsor, we would have been successful. So there might be a tendency to overreact and have that sponsor, as you were describing, that wants to be involved in everything. So it's really defining that balance. So, Tom, I'm one of the guys that just loves to have my hands in everything. How would you coach me? You talked me through just a little bit there, but I, I'm not quite sure that I want to let go that much yet. How do you help me see that? And don't be too hard on yourself um, because you're not alone in that sentiment. A lot of people in leadership positions, they got there because they were good problem solvers and have experienced success in the past and that they're reliable and they get results. And organizations see that in that person and think, oh, well, we can have that person do that in a leadership capacity and they're just broaden their reach and they'll be able to get a lot more done. So you're not alone in being a person who wants to get your hands in all the cookie dish because it, it is a lot of fun to solve problems. Um, but at a certain level, you know, the way you solve problems is got to change. So when you're in a leadership role, you have to realize that your role in problem solving is to provide the resources, to set the direction, and to empower the teams to go out and actually be successful in solving this problem. And I think that's a shift for a lot of leaders because they're so used to being the person who solves the problem to now in a leadership role being the person who sponsors the team to actually go out and understand that problem, to map it and walk that process and reframe the problem from the customer's perspectives to, to walk that whole continuous improvement journey. And it totally is a journey and it takes time. So I think, you know, to someone like you who's saying, Hey, I, I like to be involved. Well, you, you will be involved. You're going to be involved in a little bit different way. It's not like empowerment isn't, Hey, you own this uh, fire that's about ready to burn over and become catastrophic. No, it's here's 
this challenge, what resources do you need to understand this problem and to take the first logical steps to make this problem less of an issue? And so your role is more of a coach in the form of giving resources and then, okay, here's what I need to get started. It's not, all right, great. Here's everything you need. I'll talk to you after you've succeeded. No, it's you follow up with them and you give them structure and you have an ongoing dialogue with them to stay involved, to make sure that that one, they don't need any more resources two that they're continuing to stay aligned. And three, that if they hit any snags or issues or barriers along the way, that we don't wait to talk about that. We immediately address it so that these barriers, they become more little speed bumps instead of big potholes that completely derail the project. So if you're staying involved, you're just being involved in a different capacity. Okay, so you coached me in how I need to sponsor this process improvement project for the security standards that we have to implement. Talk to me about how you're going to help my team, because this is a really complex problem that's in front of us. And uh, probably nobody on that team knows the entire problem end to end. So tell me a little bit about how you're going to work with my team through this process. Yeah, that's where the real magic happens. And oftentimes that's where the sponsors commit the big crime, which I call smothering the puppy, right? Like they think it's so big, so complex that not one one person can see it all. And because of that, they exhaust themselves by trying to grind it out and, mm-hmm. and get it all done themselves. Well, in some regards, you know, you have to manage up to that sponsor to help them be successful. So that's kind of a two-way street, this project management world or continuous improvement is a facilitator's managing up to the sponsors and helping them to be effective leader. And then they manage down towards the team to help them have the, the tools, the knowledge, the skills, the mentoring, the coaching that they need in order to undertake the project. And oftentimes it's not one project, uh, but it's multiple many initiatives or smaller projects that when combined kind of add up to a larger transformation. So in this project, I'm sensing that that's true here is it's not one project, it's multiple efforts that need to be defined, coordinated. So you're not going to work on all of them all at the same time because you're just, you know, causing a traffic jam. You're telling all your resources to go and they're all trying to fit through a small doorway and they're bumping into each other and all your projects are starved for resources because everyone's trying to work on everything all at once. Now, you would never do that, but you maybe have seen it or read about it in an article somewhere. So that, that's what tends to happen. So to manage that risk, it's creating a transparency and a method to track all the initiatives that have to happen in order to realize that bigger picture. And then sequencing those in a logical order and working on them according to your capacity. And that could be one at a time. It could be two at a time concurrently. But you want to really be careful not to overstretch your resources. And once you've kind of got that balance and you know what you're needing to work on in what order, then you're ready to put your projects on the track. And that's yet another key part of this is helping your your project teams to have a framework Mm-hmm. to execute those projects in a way that is highly reliable and 
demonstrated as a best practice so that they can experience higher levels of success. You've talked uh, and mentioned this several times, uh, continuous improvement. So what that says to me is this is going to be an iterative process. We're not going to try to, uh, what's the euphemism? We're not going to try to eat the elephant whole. We're, we're going to try to do it a little bit at a time. So is that part of the coaching that you do with the team as well to help them understand that let's get it this much better, then let's get it this much better as they're working a problem? Absolutely. It's that kind of bite-sizing or chunking it down into smaller work packages from the highest level at the visionary stage through the, you know, the project level to smaller um, sprints or activities to make those projects a success, even all the way to addressing root cause issues or solutions. So you, you take a team and say they're working on a project and for that project to be successful, they have two root cause issues that they need a remedy. And, you know, for root cause number one, there's two or three best practices they can implement. For root cause issue number two, you know, there's two best practices they can implement. So there's two root causes and five potential changes. Mm-hmm. It's not do all five of those things all at once and see what happens. It's prioritize those root causes, which one's most significant, and uh, focus your energy there. Of your potential solutions or best practices, how do you conduct a small test of change to take your idea and implement it to determine, is this effective? Does this address our root cause issue? Is it a good countermeasure? Does it move the metrics that we want to see move? And then scale that up over time. So you're looking for first a demonstration of effectiveness. Can, can the operators even adopt the idea? Is scaling the change probably to the smallest you could? Is do the operators know and can they follow this new process? Okay, now the next iteration of it is now that they can follow that process, does this new process move our leading indicator in the way that we want it to on a small scale? Okay, if that's yes, now how do we scale it up and see if we can get a bigger response in our leading indicators? And then now how do we fully deploy it and see if that solution impacts the business metric we're concerned of. So it's it's a lot of bite-sized iterative mm-hmm. testing and experimenting and improving that is may be perceived as small, but truly do add up to big transformative change over time. So you've mentioned several things. And what I'd love for you to do, if, if you don't mind, Tom, is just call out what are two or three common stumbling blocks uh, in your experience with working with, with your clients? And then what are two or three key factors to success of initiatives like this? I would think uh, one of the biggest ones, and I'll try to think of a second one, but I, this one I know is probably pretty permeated, and you may have seen it in, in organizations you've partnered with, is after a team gets underway, the organization um, pushes to the point to where you know they're trying to balance time and energy and effort, and they think by asking a team to volunteer their time to work on this project is kind of encroachment, and 
um, they need to look at that as development because a lot of people, when they find themselves on these projects, this oftentimes is the most satisfying part of a person's job because, you know, they, they want to make an impact. And by putting them on these teams, yeah, they're going to have to be really good at multitasking mm-hmm. and uh, they'll figure that out. They'll manage to build the plane and, and fly it at the same time. So they've got their everyday job. And now you're asking them to do this project on top of it. And you're like, man, I, I feel like that's asking a lot of them. Don't, don't bend them till they break. Give them a little bit of a stretch goal. Give them a lot of encouragement because by doing both working and improving concurrently, it is tremendous growth and development. And almost every project team I've worked on at the end of it, the project teams come back and they say, man, I'm glad I did that. And um, that project went better than any project I'd ever worked on before. And now that I've worked with those tools before and I can see what discipline improvement does, I think differently about my job. Um, so I think that's one part of it. Yep. And the other part of it is um, have your teams meet routinely and avoid that potential pitfall of asking them to meet once a month. I, I see it occur occasionally where a committee gets formed and the committee meets once a month and it's for an hour. And they say, well, we don't want to consume people's time uh, excessively. And I said, well, if you took and you had to meet every week for 15 to 20 minutes, it's overall about the same amount of time and energy. So if you aren't already, after you've got your teams formed, one, make sure your teams know that being on this team, you were handpicked. This is growth and development. Mm-hmm. And then that way they are willing to give you that 15 minutes a week. And then in that 15 minutes a week, they're going to get a lot more traction they're going to have stronger bond as a team because they're meeting more frequently and they're not going to have to rehash previous conversations. Um, so moving them to more of a adaptive, agile team approach is probably one of the best things you can do outside of helping them understand the importance of being on this team. Yeah, it's that theme of iteration, small chunks, be agile, Uh, Rather than, I I like that, rather than having a monthly meeting that lasts an hour, have a weekly meeting that lasts 15 minutes. So, Tom, you know, we've talked about status go. We're all about action. In fact, I love to wrap up our conversations with our guests with strong call to actions for our listeners. What are one or two things our listeners should do tomorrow? because they listen to our conversation today. If you are a listener and you are on a project team and you're currently meeting once a month without an agenda, your meetings don't have uh, meeting roles within them, your team's meeting without ground rules, you know, try to change the format which your team meets. Meet more frequently and meet with more intention and you can do that by adopting good meeting management tools. And you don't have to use the tools that I've made available, uh, but be curious about them. Go out, research whatever, whatever trusted resources you tend to rely on. Look those things up and bring them into your team environment. They seem so simple having an agenda. It seems so simple to apply meeting roles to your team's format seems so simple to take minutes and to record action items and to record decisions that are made. 
seems so simple to have a parking lot to help the team keep on track. Yeah, they are very simple and they're pretty easy to do, but don't underestimate how much of an impact those easy things will actually create. So if you're on a team and you want your team to make progress with little effort, bring meeting management tools into that team environment and you're going to see overnight in that first meeting you use them, you will see a big difference. Now, if you're at the other end of the spectrum and you're over projects, you're more in a leadership capacity and you're sponsoring your projects. At that level, the one thing I would tell them to do immediately is to implement project rounding with your teams is to be available to them in a predictable way so that they always know uh, when the next update's going to be needed. Don't surprise them um, you know, at the 11th hour and say, hey, I need an update right now, uh, but have a cadence of when you are expecting updates and when your constituents, so the people above you sponsor who want information about the projects, when they're wanting updates. So in some ways, it's a communication plan that, that documents the, the dates, the intervals, the audience of the people who are going to want information about this project and make sure the team knows those things so that they're not blindsided by random request of, hey, I need an update on this tomorrow. Because that just, in some ways, messes with the mojo of the team, right? You've been, you've been in a situation where someone sends you an email, all capital letters, <laughs> I need this by this. And you're like, I want to do a good job, but I've got to stop everything I'm doing right now in order to deliver that. And yeah. having a communication plan really helps that team deliver on everyone's expectations, you know, that kind of prevents the whole organization from the tendency to want to micromanage a project. You know, as long as you communicate those things clearly to them, they can, they can satisfy them. But if you're always, it's, it's always a moving target and they don't know who needs they're trying to satisfy and they're, they're never going to actually be effective in that. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, that is great advice. Whether you're on a, on a project team, whether you're managing a project or whether you're an executive sponsor, I really want to thank you for taking your time to talk with us today and, and indulging my little role play about my project. I think that was a great way to bring the points of what you do to the surface for our listeners. So thank you very much, Tom. I enjoyed the conversation and had a lot of fun. Hopefully the audience saw a lot of value in it. And uh, as a result, you know, they can make these small little changes that really do make a big difference in how the organization gets work done. To our listeners, if you have a question or want to learn more, visit intervision.com. The show notes will provide links and contact information. And uh, we'll provide some links to Tom's podcast there as well, The Improvement Nerds, as well as to Green Dot Consulting, in case you want to follow up with him on anything you heard today. This is Jeff Tun for Tom West. Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to the Status Go podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes or get more information at intervision.com. If you'd like to contribute to the conversation, find InterVision on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Thank you for listening. Until next time.